0: I think that we need to have a mix of different you know, types of, of energy that can include renewable energies such as wind and solar, and um, you know, I also think nuclear and advanced nuclear should be part of that, and we really should look at how we build that infrastructure and electric grid in the future to provide more reliability.
1: Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we're very pleased to welcome Representative Elaine Luria. Representative Luria has represented Virginia's 2nd Congressional District since 2018. Her district includes many coastal communities, as well as eight military installations. Previously, she served two decades in the Navy, retiring at the rank of commander. Currently, she serves on the House Armed Services Committee, where she is the committee's vice chair, the House Committee on Veterans Affairs, and the House Committee on Homeland Security. My colleague Jane Nakano talks with Representative Luria about her move into politics and how her background as a nuclear-trained officer has played a role in shaping her political career. And together they discuss some of the energy and climate priorities for Representative Luria's district. I'll turn it over to Jane now.
2: Well, thank you so much for being with us. Um, Before uh, becoming a member of the Congress in 2018, you served two decades in the U.S. Navy. Among many impressive achievements, you're one of the first women in the Navy's nuclear program. You're also deployed to the Middle East and Western Pacific. Now, you are a Democratic member of the U.S. Congress, representing the area of Virginia that includes many coastal communities where you're raising a family as well. So how did you become interested in politics?
0: Well, Jane, thanks for having me. You know, as you said, I did serve two decades in the U.S. Navy, and I really was, you know, Proud to have had that opportunity to serve my country in that capacity. And, you know, I saw serving as an elected official, a member of Congress, as an opportunity to continue to serve, uh, but in a different capacity. And um, had called Hampton Roads home uh, for, for many years. My husband and I initially came there in around 2000. And, you know, thought that I could take my experience in, in the military and my connections to the district um, and, you know, serve as the representative.
2: Given all these experiences and accomplishments you have, I mean, what are some of the unique contributions that you feel you know, you've brought to the Congress?
0: Well, our region um, has a lot of military installations. We have eight major military installations. The world's largest Navy base, 40% of our economy is directly tied to the Navy and DOD. And I thought that, you know, directly bringing my experience as a surface nuclear officer in the Navy um, and understanding, you know, both the importance of the Navy and the military for our national defense, but also locally for, you know, our local economy and jobs and livelihood of so many people in the region, I thought that I could bring that experience and my knowledge there to Congress and, and help with a lot of important issues.
2: And if we can start sort of chatting about sort of climate and the resilience type of issues, extreme weather events from climate change are you know, starting to affect the electric power supply system in many parts of the nation today. Um, you know, last year, we saw the wildfire in California, uh, and very recently, uh, the polar vortex in states like Texas affected uh, many households and businesses. What are the, some of the lessons uh, for the nation?
0: Well, you know, I think that this vulnerability, um, you know, in our weather patterns um, is something that we really need to take into account when we make future investments in in our energy infrastructure. And so, you know, I think that we need to look at all of those issues of resiliency, whether it be fires in the West or, you know, continued coastal flooding um, in areas uh, like coastal Virginia, and really understand how those impacts and variables in our weather pattern And even things that are routine, like the recurrent flooding that we experience in Virginia, um, can impact the energy infrastructure. And so, you know, I think that we need to have a mix of different, you know, types of of energy that can include renewable energies such as wind and solar. And, um, you know, I also think nuclear and advanced nuclear should be part of that. And we really should look at how we build that infrastructure and electric grid in the future to provide more reliability.
2: It's interesting to see how these events are starting to affect so many different communities and different states across the nation. It, it doesn't really seem to be something just specific to one part of the nation. And uh, it'd be interesting to see, I guess, more uh, discussion and sort of uh, lessons learned between the federal government level and state government level. And, and I thought the coastal communities in, in Virginia probably have a lot of lessons learned that can be um, studied and you know, looked at closely by a lot of other communities. And you just mentioned, you know, the, both renewables and nuclear. Uh, you know, we're seeing renewable energy, you know, sources like wind and solar, continue to become cheaper today. And we're also seeing a lot of uh, uh, advancements in battery technologies uh, that would allow these intermittent renewables to become much more uh, bigger sort of player in the nation's power supply system. But when it comes to nuclear, you know, we still hear and see you know, the high capital cost and the prospect of major overruns in construction time and, and budget, giving a lot of pauses to you know, ratepayers, ratepayers, uh, utilities, and, and also some states About sort of before really committing to perhaps adding new units or even uh, going for a license extension, Um, does nuclear have a role in the nation's power supply system um, despite all these other resources becoming uh, much more viable?
0: Well, Jane, I absolutely think that nuclear um, has a place in the future of our energy. You know, we talk about wind and solar and, you know, it's really easy to see that the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine, and you need a reliable source or a base load. And, you know, although battery technology is developing, battery technology on the scale that it could, you know, make up uh, for fluctuations um, and power usage is, you know, not... Developed to the point that nuclear could accommodate for that, and if you look in Virginia, for example, in our service region, about uh, one third of the power that's provided is nuclear, and I think we don't, you know, look at that and, and talk about that enough. Um, and there are obviously nuclear plants in different parts of the country that are shuttering for some of the reasons that you've uh, discussed. But I think advanced nuclear and um, new technologies—we're not talking about you know building more 1960s-era pressurized water reactors. Um, There's a lot of research and development going on in the nuclear field for new types of fuel that are more reliable, produce less waste, have more safety features, and I certainly think that that is um, something that we need to consider in, in the future of our energy. Instead of further incentivizing the use of fossil fuels, we need to look at nuclear wind, solar um, and I'm a big proponent for for wind as well. There's quite a few projects going off uh, the East Coast um, and right off the coast of Virginia, the largest project being developed and the first in federal waters. Um, so it's a 2,640 megawatt project that will power about 660,000 homes being developed. So, you know, I think that along with nuclear and the advancements and the decrease in cost for solar are, are all things um, that we should pursue in, in an effort to, to cut CO2 emissions and um negate some of the the impacts we've seen of climate change.
2: So do you see uh, nuclear being sort of one of the key components uh, as President Biden sort of uh, tries to uh, pursue his vision for the 2035 uh, being uh, when he wants to see the nation's power supply be non-carbon based?
0: Well, I certainly will be one of the biggest proponents of that. You know, I did push very hard to make sure that nuclear was considered in the special committee on the climate crisis report. Um, so nuclear was mentioned um, in there in the the future of advanced nuclear and also even during the campaign and the, the president's platform. I was a strong advocate to making sure when we talked about energy, the word nuclear appeared in that discussion. And so I'll continue doing that. And in last Congress, we actually had an opportunity to advance um, some significant legislation um, towards advanced nuclear. I introduced the House version of the Nuclear Energy Leadership Act, and large portions of that were enacted into law over the two years of appropriations. So we actually were able to finance uh, 250 million towards advanced reactor demonstration projects, um, as well as over 40 million for university research projects. Um, And I'll continue to push um, for that really critical federal investment in the research and development of these new types of, um, you know, reactor technology. And as far as the existing
2: fleet goes, I mean, are there also things that the Congress may be taking a close look at, trying to keep bipartisan momentum that we've seen on uh, nuclear R&D uh, side of discussion?
0: Definitely. We, we've we also encouraged investment in continuing the operation of existing uh, nuclear plants Um, And, you know, I think that Congress has a a role in that, um, you know, both making sure that the regulatory agencies that that oversee the operation of those plants continue to have the resources to make sure that they're operated safely, um, and then the ability to, you know, further extend the life of those um, nuclear power plants that, you know, can continue to operate well into the future.
2: And if we may uh, sort of shift the gear to sort of the U.S. leadership in the world uh, in the global nuclear uh, commercial space, you know we're seeing Russia sort of leading this uh, export uh, scene uh, in recent years. Uh, but then also China is aspiring to become the next major uh, global supplier of nuclear technologies and, and perhaps even fuel uh, down the road. And it was interesting to see uh, out of this uh, recent Chinese five-year plan they uh, sort of uh, stress that they do continue to see nuclear as part of their uh, energy mix and hoping to hit, I think, 70 gigawatt install capacity by 2025. And they do actually have about 16 units under construction, if I'm not mistaken. So it's not a, it shouldn't come out as a surprise, but at the same time when uh, many other economies are slowing down or being you know, uh, rather sort of stagnant, these numbers definitely catch um, you know, a lot of attention. So you know, when it comes to uh, exports, they do combine very generous loans, uh, but then also this one-stop-shop uh, approach, especially as they try to engage countries that are inexperienced in uh, nuclear power generation. And some would argue that as far as the climate benefits go, these countries, um, especially Russia and China, they do sort of lower the barrier for entry. But at the same time, I mean, there are a lot of concerns and implications, uh, not just related to uh, safety and security, but then also just market competition, what's really fair, uh, the level playing field, et cetera. In your view, what are some of the top concerns?
0: Well, um, you know, I think those are all very valid observations about, you know, China and Russia's, um, you know, increased development of nuclear power plants in developing countries. And I think that's a big, you know, geopolitical concern for the U.S. You know, this is amongst many other infrastructure developments that the Chinese are making around the developing world. Um, And as you mentioned, these projects come with hefty loans that often those countries will never be able to repay into the foreseeable future. And so that's allowing Chinese economic influence in those areas. And the U.S. has not been essentially competing on the same scale um, to make sure that we have access in those countries and those economies. And so that is really a, a national security concern. And so kind of all taken into the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, where they're trying to you know, increase their, their presence in all of these places. I think the U.S. needs to look at the different ways that they're going to maintain access there. And, you know, I talk a lot in my role as the vice chair on the Armed Services Committee. and very interested in Navy shipbuilding and naval presence. That is a very important part of it. But, you know, I also think this economic aspect of it, as well as, you know, the ability to provide energy um, in these countries where they're otherwise challenged to be able to you know, produce energy for their power needs. You know, China is stepping in and filling a role there, and they're becoming literally indebted to the Chinese for these large projects. So I think that the U.S. needs to play a greater role in that. And I think that we have, you know, Place some restrictions on ourselves for the export of nuclear technologies that I think are potentially overreaching. You know, I think that we can do that safely in coordination with you know trusted allies and partner nations without the fear of you know some of the concerns that come about with you know proliferation and you know having uh, providing nuclear technology to other countries. So I think there is a place for the U.S. to play a bigger role. Um, and interestingly, it was a, at a CSIS event almost two years ago. I, I had the great opportunity to, to sit next to and discuss these issues with Senate, former Senator John Warner. Um, also a Virginian, also former Secretary of the Navy, and, you know, really kind of was able to put into perspective, you know, how much the use of nuclear power and investment in nuclear power around the world is, you know, a threat um, to the U.S. presence and access in those other countries. And then furthermore, um, just taking it on another tangent from what I learned at that event as well, is, you know, really the importance of maintaining our nuclear industrial base in the U.S. and the fact that, you know, as nuclear power plants around the country, you know, the older ones began to, to to shutter and you know the demand for enriching fuel in the u.s is uh, you know going down um, that does have a specific and distinct impact on the industrial base that provides that fuel for our, our military uses such as our aircraft carriers and our submarines so I think that there is you know a big opportunity there to you know both promote and increase that capacity within that that sector um, and at the same time um, you know have advances in, in new forms of nuclear energy and um, you know new developments
2: we've started seeing um, u you know, s companies trying to compete in places like Eastern Europe I-, I don't know if you know you've been following that side as much I'm just curious if these export sort of government support will likely to change or, or even increase or is continue to be on the table. You know, some of the financial institutions, like um, US XM Bank, also uh, Development Finance Corporation, um, but then when it comes to uh, the the level of financing you know it's really hard to match these state uh, led capitalist economies uh way of doing business but i think we do have a lot of companies that are creative have great experiences and so if you have um some sense of like how this export competition support from the u.s government may look like under the new administration
0: Well, um, you know, I'd say it's early in the administration, so I haven't had the opportunity to have discussions, you know, specifically about this issue with, um, you know, new leadership in the administration, but it's certainly something that I will promote. I mean, I think the export of this type of technology and other U.S. technology and industrial capacity um, to, to countries around the world is very important for maintaining those relationships with our partner nations and also, you know, kind of shutting the door to other countries that could come in and attempt to exert influence in those regions by providing that capability to other countries. So, you know, I think that we do need to compete on the economic front. I think that we need to expand, you know, the opportunities for U.S. companies um, through XM Bank and, and other similar programs um, to bring their technology and, you know, industrial capability um, overseas.
2: I guess going back a little bit to efforts in Congress, um, would you expect continued bipartisan support for nuclear R&D?
0: Definitely, I, I found that there is really broad bipartisan support for advanced nuclear. I, you know, not to say that you know everyone is solidly behind nuclear, but I have found you know a good amount of support on both sides of the aisle, and it is a place where you can actually find common ground in the sense that um you know maybe people don't all come to the table for the same reasons you know there are some folks who you know are still hesitant to admit that that climate change is, is truly a factor yet they believe strongly in nuclear so depending on you know how you word the argument and and why you promote this i mean one side um, may take the climate argument as their main motivator, and another side may take the national security argument. But if you can kind of thread that needle and bring a diverse group of people together to talk about the importance of this issue, even if their reasons for coming to the table are different, I think that that's a good way that we can push an issue like this forward and continue to make advances. And, you know, the legislation, the Nuclear Energy Leadership Act from last Congress, you know, we were able to get significant funding in two subsequent appropriations packages for advanced nuclear development. And it really brought together a diverse group of people on the Senate side. It was Senators Murkowski and Booker. And then on the House side, I introduced it with a you know bipartisan group of, of four co-sponsors, and was able to get you know additional support from both Republicans and Democrats in the House for this issue.
2: I certainly look forward to continued bipartisan support and sort of increased recognition that it really nuclear serves so many different. Uh, objectives as Biden administration tries to reestablish our leadership, uh, not just on climate, but then also on nuclear technology and ecosystem leadership. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time and for uh, sharing your insights.
0: Thank you so much for continuing to highlight this issue. And you know I look forward to continuing to work on this um, in the 117th Congress.
1: Thanks to Representative Luria for joining us this week. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts on CSIS.org and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening.